Okay, last Sunday night, Pastor Chad introduced us to a more complete meaning of worship. You may recall that there were people on the video that uh, were asked to describe what worship is, and there was a variety of responses, but most of them centered around the parts of the church service. Now, I don't want to minimize or diminish the church service. As a matter of fact, Pastor Mike will be leading us in some teaching on that here in a couple of weeks. But as we learned last week, worship is not just music, not just praise, or any other aspect of the church service. Worship is a way of being rather than a list of do's or don'ts. It's what we do every day, all the time. We're always worshiping something or someone. It's just a matter of who it is that we worship at this point in time. It should be the desire of all Christians to worship the one true God that has revealed himself through the scriptures. Now, gospel-shaped worship is a spirit-empowered worship. It's driven by the finished work of Christ as revealed to us by the Spirit. Real worship is not just about feelings, but it has a foundation in truth and a foundation in doctrine. Worship is in the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength. And it's only, the only acceptable worship comes from the heart. It is not a set of works or following rules, or, but genuine worship comes from knowing and serving the one true God. So what is the foundation of worship? Well, simply put, the gospel is the only foundation of worship of God. As we think about how and why we worship the one true God, what do we base this worship on? Again, many have tried to base worship on our own experiences, our human traditions, teachings of denominations, or any number of other feelings or events that have happened in our lives. But genuine worship comes from knowing and serving the one true God. The gospel is the most important part of Christianity. All other religions teach that there are things for us to do uh, in order to merit God's favor. Unfortunately, even some of uh, the religious groups and denominations that uh, identify themselves with Christianity, uh, teach that there are steps to be followed, things to be done or not done, in order to be, make us good enough to be saved. The Bible, however, teaches that God is holy and just. His commandments are to be obeyed. However, this, the means for humans to successfully obey God's commands and to achieve salvation simply does not exist. We can't fully obey God's commands, and we cannot earn his forgiveness. So it appears that we're kind of stuck. If we can't obey God's law fully, and we can't earn our forgiveness, then what can we do? Well, only Christianity teaches that the things to do have already been done. That is the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the answer to that very real conflict that we have between God's holiness and our sin. So what is the gospel of Jesus? Well, the video we watched tonight clearly indicated that the gospel is the heart of Christianity, and it should be the central theme in all that we do. 
Now, perhaps tonight is a good opportunity for us to just step back and revisit what exactly is the gospel. The passage we're going to look at tonight is Titus 3, 3 through 8. If you would like, uh, turn your Bibles to that passage. And uh, just to read through it, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So this passage has a wonderful summary of the gospel of Christ. It contains all this, the essential elements of the gospel message, and we'll take a look at those various elements as the evening goes on. The video also talks about the importance of choosing and using words to explain the gospel. I'm glad that the video addressed that statement that was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi regarding preaching the gospel and, if necessary, use words. As stated in the video, there's quite a contradiction in that, isn't there? If we only need to use words when necessary, yet we need to have a conversation with those we interact with, it becomes necessary to use words. And I think we just have to get used to that idea. The fact is, we do need to talk to others to explain the idea, or to explain the gospel. Now, I think the idea of that phrase was, as I recall at least, that if we live a good and God-honoring life around our non-believing friends, then they will come to us and ask us what it is that makes us tick. Why do we do what we do? Well, unfortunately, that question was often never asked, and people use that statement as a justification for not uh, having that conversation about the gospel uh, with those around us. Is the gospel easy to explain? In some respects it is, but in other respects it can be very difficult. Often the most difficult part of sharing the gospel is starting the conversation. And for some of us it's a matter of knowing where to start that conversation uh, to explain the gospel. Now, I suspect many of us in this room have a foundational knowledge of what the gospel is and how it is the power to save us from our sins. But I would also expect that those of us in this auditorium have different levels of comfort uh, about explaining the gospel. Now, that comfort level does improve as we understand the essentials of the gospel and become more experienced at articulating it. So, again, unfortunately, we have to do it in order to get better at it. Well, a loose parallel to the idea that it can be difficult to explain something that we know very well is an exercise that I got roped into once when I was at uh, college where I was in a building and a person who was blindfolded came up to me and asked for directions on how to get to another part of the building. Well, I, I was not allowed to just physically take them there and obviously pointing to that direction of the building didn't do us any good. And um, uh, 
I was not allowed to, uh, to do anything else other than just tell them where to, to go and how to get there. And I'd been in that building many times, and I could actually see the area that that person asked me to, to direct them to. But I did not know how to put the words together to uh, describe to that person how to get to that part of the building. It was really quite embarrassing. Now, another example is uh, when I took my wife, Karen, to my parents' home in Nebraska for the first time. Now, my parents' home address was, at the time, Rural Route 1, P.O. Box 73, Exeter, Nebraska. Okay? So this was well before GPS, and the county roads did not have names or road signs, and our uh, houses didn't have street numbers on them at the time. So as we traveled west on U.S. Highway 6, I turned my turn signal on, turned left on a county road, turned right on another county road, and within just a few seconds then I was at my parents' home. Now, Karen asked me, how did I know how to turn off the highway at that particular spot? And I thought the only answer I could give her was, well, that's how I get there. You know, I didn't have any other good uh, explanation of that other than, these are, the, these are the cues that I have in my head, but I can't really explain it. Even if I could, you know, use names of houses and, uh, and landmarks and stuff, that really d wouldn't done her any good because she didn't have a, a common frame of reference. So, uh, um, by the way, in case you were wondering, that's where Rural Route 1, Box 73 is. <laughs> so, now, in case you think that can only happen in rural areas... I experienced the same kind of confusion with traveling in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota with Karen. Okay, she grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay, so she could drive to many destinations in the downtown without any difficulty because she had done it so many times. So as, me, as with me on the country roads in Nebraska, however, she had difficulty describing to me how she knew where to turn to get to the, uh, to the destinations that we wanted to go. So even though we can be very familiar with something, it can be difficult to explain it to someone else. And we certainly run into that issue when explaining the gospel. Now in his book, What is the Gospel?, author Greg Gilbert recounts several responses by people asked to explain the good news of Christianity. Here are just a couple of those responses that I hope will help us make that point. So the first one was, my understanding of Jesus' message is that he teaches us to live in the reality of God now, here and today. It's almost as if Jesus keeps saying, change your life and live this way. And another one, the good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you, regardless of what you have done, where you have been, or how many mistakes you have made. He loves you and is turned in your direction, looking for you. And the third one that I have on the screen is that the gospel itself refers to the proclamation that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is the one true and only Lord of the world. Now this next quote is a little too long to be on the screen, but a well-known Christian artist was asked one time to explain the gospel. Now, the artist's name is not given in the book, so I have no idea who it is, all right? Uh, but uh, this was the response that, uh, that they gave. 
What a great question. I guess I'd probably, my instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, dying, and being resurrected and is inaugurating the already and the not yet of all things being restored to himself and that happening by the way of himself, the being made right of all things, that process both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers, and yet a day coming when it will be more fully realized. But the good news, the gospel, the speaking of the good news, I would say, is the news of his kingdom coming, the inaugurating of his kingdom coming. That is my instinct. Okay, so it's easy to see that there are both many ideas of what the gospel truly is and also many levels of skill or comfort in articulating the true what the true gospel entails. Sure, some of the statements uh, that uh, uh, we just went through are a little bit suspect uh, when it comes to uh, understanding what the gospel truly is, but there are also several that show different levels of completeness of the explanation of what uh, the true gospel looks like. So what is this good news that we call the gospel? Well, let's start with the knowledge that God is our loving and merciful creator and sustainer. He is also the holy and righteous judge of the world. Last week, Pastor Chad did a great job in describing the many attributes of God using Psalm 96. Now, I won't revisit all those tonight, but I think a passage in Exodus describes a couple of those attributes that are particularly important for our discussion. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 gives us great reassurance that we, that we serve a loving and merciful God. And if we could stop there, we wouldn't have to worry about anything else, would we? However, the last part of verse 7 indicates that he cannot and will not overlook sin. His commandments are his holy standard. Now, Craig Schaefer, in his sermon during Missions Conference, uh, described how God's commandments actually show us how unholy we are and how unable we are to meet those holy standards. Craig mentioned that many will hold up the Ten Commandments as the goal, the way to live in order to earn God's favor. However, instead of being that shining light to show us the path to righteousness, it's really a mirror that we should look at to see how unworthy we are in our own strength to earn that favor. So what makes us unholy? And you know, we've talked about how we cannot meet God's standards, but what is it about us that, uh, that causes us not to be able to, to meet that standard? Well, Titus 3.3 is one of the many descriptions uh, that we see in the scriptures of how we fail to meet God's holy standards. Again, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. 
starts out, for we ourselves. It not only refers to Paul and the church on Crete, where Titus was a ministering, but it means everyone. Now, the Apostle Paul states that uh, very emphatically in many of his letters that we have contained in the Bible. Romans chapter 3 has reinforced that thought in several places. Here's just a couple. Romans 3, 10, and 11 says, As it is written, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And this is actually quoted from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So this wasn't new information that was Paul was imparting uh, to the church at Rome. This is something that uh, uh, humans have known for, for many centuries. And Romans 3.23 also convicts all of us. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as hard as we may try, we can never be justified in our own power. To fall short of the glory of God means to be separated from him because we cannot separate God from his glory. Getting back to Titus 3.3, we are foolish, disobedient, and led astray. So in our foolishness, we have been disobedient to God and have been uh, led astray from his commands, which is a very good description of what sin is and what sin does. Our disobedience has separated us from the holy and just God of the universe. It also says, we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now this includes, but does not only refer to sexual sin, but all the sinful pleasures that satisfy us. You know, some obvious things could be uh, alcohol, drugs, gambling, or any number of other addictions that you may think of, but it can also include anything else that we love more than God. And that could include, of course, love of money, power, relationships, or the ability to exploit them, for sure. And the list can go on and on. And it also says, passing our days with malice and, malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Malice and envy are interesting phrases here, interesting words here. Malice is wishing bad things on other people, and envy is wishing that good things would not happen to other people, but would rather them happen to us. And that attitude of malice and envy then results in us being hated by others and, others, and, and us hating one another. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the book, When Helping Hurts, you may recognize from this passage some of the relationships that are broken because of sin. That would, those would be the relationships with, between us and God, ourself, and others. Disobedience is breaking our relationship with God. Um, being slaves to the passions and pleasures is breaking our relationship with ourselves. And malice and envy is breaking our relationship with others. The gospel of Jesus Christ has a lot of stumbling blocks to it. And, one of, and this is one of the most prominent. To the human hearts that stubbornly think of themselves as basically good and self-sufficient, the idea that human beings are fundamentally sinful is completely revolting. But that is why it is so crucial that we understand both the nature and depth of our sin. Because without the understanding of sin, 
the rest of the gospel will make no sense. So up till now, we've only talked about the bad news of the gospel, right? So where is this good news that everybody talks about as we keep calling the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, the short answer is that Jesus Christ is the answer to that conflict between God's holiness and our sin. Titus 3, 4 through 6 gives us further insight to that wonderful truth. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. Just breaking that down a bit, he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us. It's because of God loved us and showed us his goodness and kindness that we can be saved. And it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That statement completely rules out any claim that we have on our own uh, to have justification before God. I hate to tell you folks, but God is not compelled to save us. He doesn't owe us anything. And it's only through his mercy do we have the opportunity to be saved. And then it says, by, washing, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. Well, washing is spiritual cleansing. Our spirit was black as death, but Christ's blood cleansed it white as snow. Regeneration is that new life that a person receives when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Renewal is closely associated with regeneration. It signifies the complete transformation of a person's life that begins when one is regenerated. Now, regeneration and renewal are essential part of salvation because we cannot see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God unless God first changes our hearts. And that's what regeneration and renewal is all about. And then finally it says, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. And it is this change of regeneration and renewal that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Again, it reinforces the statement in verse 5 that we cannot earn our salvation on our own. It is only a gift of God through the Holy Spirit that we have that opportunity. Now, uh, another stumbling block of the gospel, the sacrificial, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross is another major stumbling block of the gospel. Now, the Bible describes Jesus as the Son of God, and Jesus himself proclaims that relationship with his heavenly Father. So the idea that this loving God that we serve would kill his own Son for our redemption is silliness to some and completely offensive to others. That phrase that sometimes uh, gets associated with this discussion is divine child abuse. Perhaps some of you have heard that. But why was death necessary? And why was it Jesus' death specifically that was required for salvation to be, to be available to those who believe? Well, the requirement of death or the shedding of blood for payment or atonement of sin is well described in detail in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, we don't have time uh, to go through all of that this evening. But uh, 
the whole system of substitutionary death of animals for our sins is deeply woven into the ceremonial law practiced by the priests in the temple. Those sacrifices were a means of temporarily covering over our sins, but needed repeated uh, on a regular basis because those sacrifices were not complete and perfect. Jesus, on the other hand, provided that complete and perfect sacrifice. He is the Son of God, without sin, and equal in every divine perfection to God the Father. He is able to defeat death and save us from our sin because of that perfection. And in the same way, though, it's also critical that Jesus was truly one of us, completely human, so that he can rightly represent us before the Father. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he, in every respect, had been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So with the truths of Titus 3, 3 through 6 in mind, what must we do to be saved? Well, we need only to look at Jesus' own words about his ministry for, to answer that question. Mark 1.15 records Jesus saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That command, repent and believe, is what God requires of us in response to the gospel or the good news of Jesus. You may recall earlier that I said Christianity is the only religion where the things to be done have already been done. We simply need to believe in the salvation provided through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is the result of all of that for us? Well, Titus 3.7 rounds out this whole description of the gospel. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hope in this passage does not mean wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope I get a bicycle for my birthday, or something like that. Hope, in this uh, context, is a certainty based on the sure promise of God. As heirs, we are now members of God's family. That family membership is the key to being able to worship the one true God. Okay, so we've gone through the essentials of the gospel. So how or why is the gospel then the foundation of our worship? Well, from last week, we learned that worship means to give worth or value to something or to ascribe worth or value to something. It expresses what we find most valuable and satisfying. Our proper biblical understanding and response to the gospel allows us to be in God's magnificent family even though we do not deserve it and we have not any reason to expect it. That should cause us to find God most valuable and satisfying. It is only through the renewing of our souls that we can truly worship God. And since we cannot do that on our own, the regeneration and renewal are exclusively gifts of God, which, we, which should make God even more highly valued. Okay, unfortunately, as I said earlier, many religious systems, including some that identify as Christian, want to make a way of earning salvation outside the free gift of salvation that has been offered through faith in Christ. Any attempt to earn our salvation is not worshiping God. It's worshiping ourselves, and that is idolatry. 
So how do we worship in light of uh, Titus 3 through 8? Well, you may have noticed that we haven't gotten to verse 8 yet. And uh, verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, I've made many comments tonight about how we can do nothing to earn our salvation. However, after receiving that free gift of salvation, we cannot simply go on our merry way and do nothing to honor God for, uh, for all that, in all that we do. We are to live our life of good works. Again, not as an attempt to earn our salvation, but because of that salvation or as a result of it. That is one of the many ways we worship God on a day-to-day basis. There are those in the world that may look at the gospel as cheap fire insurance, if you want to call it that, simply a way to avoid hell. However, the commandment to, we are commanded to do something positive with our salvation. A truly transformed heart has the desire to worship and to serve God. It is only through the proper biblical understanding of the gospel do we have that ability to be transformed into a child or heir of God. Now perhaps another way to understand how the gospel is the foundation of worship is to examine the phrase, our Savior and Lord. Now we often hear that phrase as our Lord and Savior, right? But I want to try and flip that around for, for this evening. There are many that would be happy to have a Savior, one that will save them for the just punishment of their sin. But what about the word Lord? The dictionary definition of Lord is someone or something having power, authority, or influence, a master or ruler. As we apply that definition of Lord to Jesus in our lives, we must submit to his authority and power over us. Jesus is to be our master and ruler. If Jesus is not our Lord, we do not consider him most valuable and satisfying. Submitting to his authority and mastery over us is the working definition of what worship is, and it can only happen if we believe the gospel. Jesus cannot be our Lord until he is our Savior, but as our Savior, we must make him our Lord. Now, I hope I've taken us on a deliberate path tonight through what worship is, through the content of the gospel, and have brought us back again to worship and how that gospel is the foundation of our worship. In the book, What is the Gospel, that I mentioned earlier, uh, Greg Gilbert has an excellent summary of how the gospel and worship are so tightly related. In that, uh, in that book, there's a quote that says, An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. It lowers our eyes from God to self and cheapens what God has accomplished for us in Christ. The biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel for the furnace of worship. The more you understand about it, believe it, and rely on it, the more you adore God for both who he is and for what he has accomplished for us in Christ. I hope this has given us all a new or renewed appreciation for the content and the power of the gospel and why it is truly the foundation of worship. Let's pray.
Well, dear Heavenly Father, it's with great humility that we come before you, acknowledging that we have no standing before you in and of ourselves. It is only through believing in the gift of salvation that you have offered to us through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus that we can stand before you as children and heirs to your kingdom. We thank you for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that not only is our, as our means of salvation, but the foundation for worship of you. We pray that as we live our lives, we place ourselves under your lordship and that we worship you in a way that you have intended for us as children of God. Thank you again for the good news of the gospel that only you can provide. In Jesus' name we pray.